Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to our latest Sibylline Insight Series podcast. I'm Amy Reynolds, your host for today, and I'm joined this week by Hugo Yu, our lead Asia-Pacific analyst, and our Asia-Pacific and cyber analyst, Hans Horan. And today, we're going to be discussing the fast-approaching Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games and some of the associated political and security dynamics. Hugo, Hans, thank you both very much for joining me. So to start by giving a bit of background to our topic, and some of the aspects that are keeping our team up at night. With less than 15 days now to go until the start of the Games, Tokyo is set to be placed under a fourth state of emergency by the Japanese government amid a fresh surge of COVID-19 infections. The ever-changing pandemic situation has characterized the uncertainty that has really shrouded this flagship global sporting event, having already been postponed once and having attracted notable opposition among the Japanese public. So, On that note, Hans, to come to you first, the rearranged Tokyo Olympic Games, you know, have been a highly divisive topic in Japan due to a number of factors. How do you see the reimposition of state of emergency measures in Tokyo affecting the public perception of the Games? Thanks, Amy. That's a great question. In in my opinion, I believe the reimposition of the state of emergency measures will negatively affect the Tokyo Olympics perception amongst the Japanese public particularly due to the fact that there's already this public perception that Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga's administration has been prioritizing the Tokyo Games over other issues such as the pandemic and such as allocating resources to strengthening the healthcare infrastructure and towards issues such as preserving what he believes is important aspects of the Tokyo Games, such as the ability for Tokyo to take on tourists under other things such as last year's go-to travel campaign. So I see that the reimposition of the state of emergency measures in Tokyo, particularly because of the fact it's only being reimposed in Tokyo, will basically reinforce the idea amongst the Japanese public that Japan is not handling the pandemic well, that the measures that the that the administration have put in are not working, and that it's going to reinforce the idea that they can't trust the administration itself. According to a recent survey conducted by local Japanese media outlets, uh, such as TV Asahi, about 44% of respondents said that they did not support Shuga's cabinet's measures that, are, that, that measures against the COVID pandemic. They've also, about 33%, also evaluated that his measures haven't been working to that extent. So I do see that this reimposition is going to further reinforce this negative perception of both the Tokyo Games and Shuga's administration. Got it. Thank you, Hans. So quite a tough domestic environment for the Games and its organizers there going into the event. And you mentioned public feeling towards the government there as well. Um, And so my next question is, are the Japanese prime minister and the ruling party, the LDP, liable to change their policy stance towards the Tokyo Games at all in the few weeks before it begins? No, not at all, honestly. It's been, they've been quite strong on the fact that they're going to support the Games and that they're not going to change any aspects that would interfere with, with the Games being held in the next few weeks, despite the fact that they have lost some elections recently, looking particularly at the by-elections that took place a few months ago, particularly in Hiroshima, which is the kind of core supporting base for for the LDP. And then more recently with the Tokyo Metropolitan Assembly election, which they won along with their coalition partner, Komito, technically, but they didn't win an outright majority. And a number of the the voting base particularly said that this was because of Shuka and the LDP's support of the Tokyo Olympics and mishandling the pandemic. 
So despite the fact that this has been a strong kind of reason why to, why support for both Sugar's cabinet and the LDP have declined in recent months, they've already spent an estimated $28 billion on the games. They've already invested heavily in ensuring that security systems around the games are maintained. And at this point, I'm pretty sure the Japanese government just kind of want the games done and they want to move on to something else, particularly uh, other aspects such as re re rejuvenating the economy itself. So I, I really don't see the policy stance towards the Tokyo Games changing anytime before the games or even during the games. And I would add the fact that Suga just reimposed uh, the state of emergency for Tokyo for the entire duration of the games and beyond. That's just an indication of you know how determined government is of hosting the games. Status emergency could have you know very profound impact. On, on the game itself, uh, due to the fact, you know, not least, there could be basically venues in Tokyo could be staged uh, events without any uh, spectators. Now, let's not forget, many months ago, Japanese government already banned foreign visitors, uh, foreign spectators uh, from entering Japan for the games. So you see, despite the challenges, there's been a lot of changes in policies, uh, COVID countermeasures. But one thing hasn't changed is the determination in hosting the game. In, in addition to that, the chief cabinet secretary, Katsunobu Kato, also said yesterday, just before this, the reimposition of the state of emergency, that the Tokyo Games would be held throughout the duration of the state of emergency. And he did ask for the Japanese public's cooperation, ensuring that the games are successfully held, which in my mind further reinforces the idea that there's not going to be any policy changes within the next couple of weeks or even during the games themselves. Great. Well, thank you both for that. Yeah, it seemed pretty clear there that the uh, the government's determination is is quite an unequivocal line. So that's 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 something at least. So then, I guess looking to kind of the games itself, what are the main security risks that we should be looking at here? You know, is there potential for cyber attacks that may target the games and its sponsors and stakeholders? As this game is going to be a, perhaps a unique sporting event in the sense that in addition to the what we expect much tightened security arrangement, COVID secure would be very high if not among the top agenda for the game organizers and hosters. So the Japanese government already committed resources, including a deployment of uh, Japanese self-defense forces uh, on key strategic locations for security protection of the games. But they also have to have implemented and revised quite a lot of COVID countermeasures. Um, the declaration of a state of emergency order for Tokyo being one of them, but also participants and, and officials will be subject to regular, if not daily, COVID attacks and there are strict rules of contact and social interactions in the Olympic Village. So as we can see, the security challenge is going to be multiplied due to the COVID situation. But in terms of the geopolitical risks, obviously, you know, one cannot forget Japan's near neighbor, North Korea, a long-standing adversary. You know, by the way, not turning up for the games due to health concerns, concerns of, you know, potentially spreading COVID back to own country. North Korea is known to basically conduct some proactive activities at or during very sort of high profile international events. Olympic Games definitely been under this category and um, to either vent their anger or just to make a point to basically draw 
international attention. Uh, and previously, they had conducted activities such as uh, missile launch uh, near or during the uh, Olympic Games or, or other important meetings like the G20s or, or important state visits. So one cannot uh, really ruled out similar sort of activity taking place during the games. Well, this may not have, in our view, a very sort of direct impact on the running of the games. For that, I think the concern of COVID will be much higher than, uh, you know, the, the, the risk of the threat posed by North Korea. But it will nevertheless perhaps dry up uh, regional tensions in, in Asia Pacific. And, and we have to say, uh, at, at this moment in time, we haven't seen any evidence to suggest that there are such activity from Pyongyang is imminent, nevertheless. Also, in terms of kind of more domestically, there's also the threat of protests taking place against the games in Tokyo or in other major cities like Kyoto or Osaka, where other type of events are planned. If you're looking at what the biggest protests would be that would be targeted against the games, you have the anti-games protest groups themselves, so they would be very much targeted against stopping or in some way interfering with the games from, from operating. Uh, while Japan doesn't necessarily have a history of quite disruptive or violent protests, at least not in recent years, there is the possibility of there being small to medium-sized groups. These would probably be somewhere between tens to hundreds of, of protesters, um, and they would largely be protesting outside the main stadiums or in main passageways to, to in some way impede the progress of the games. Uh, the only caveat I have to this is that because of the state of emergency and because of the heightened security implicated, the security apparatus that have been implemented for the games themselves, these, these protesters aren't necessarily going to pose the biggest risk, at, at least in my opinion, to, to the games at the moment, just because, uh, again, there's, there's fear of the COVID virus, which is going to make certain protesters reluctant to come out and protest. Uh, especially in large groups. And then the Japanese government's going to be quite on top of making sure that whatever type of opposition is, is actually targeted against the games is going to be have a minimal impact on the games themselves. I mean, further afield, if you're looking at things outside the anti-games protests, you also have the issue of environmental protesters coming to targeting the games. This would particularly be focused on the fact that you have food being served from Fukushima, which, uh, as we all know, we had the Daiichi nuclear power plant ex explosion incident a few years ago that in many, for many people in Japan hasn't really changed. For many people, the perception is still that it's still quite a radioactive area and that food grown from this area is still quite dangerous for consumption. So the fact that the Japanese government and that the Tokyo Olympics are serving food to athletes that is from these regions has sparked a little bit of alarm amongst not only, say, the Japanese public, but also South Korean public and the Chinese public, for that instance. And there has been numerous chatter on social media websites, be it Weibo, be it Twitter, be it uh, Naver for, for the Korean audience, uh, that they've been talking about encouraging the athletes to bring their own chefs and to bring their own provisions so that they don't have to eat the food. So there is the possibility of, you of these groups that have been throughout the last years trying to advocate to the Japanese government that Fukushima is still not safe of them coming down to the Tokyo Olympics or even protesting the events that are supposed to take place in Fukushima or around the area. I believe there's a baseball game that's supposed to be taking place in Fukushima itself of them targeting these events as a means to highlight the, the, the point they're trying to make in terms of this is not a safe area due to radiation or that the food's not safe to consume. So these will much be more targeted uh, in terms of not disrupting the games, but to prove a political point. There's also possible them starting some type of social media campaign they have to a certain extent already, but it hasn't gained much, too much traction amongst the Japanese public online. But there's a possibility they're gaining traction if physical protests take place in the, uh, against the games themselves. So there is a, a, a latent risk of that happening somewhere in terms of the, the games in the next few weeks.
But with regards to your question regarding cyber attacks, there's, of course, there's always going to be a risk of some type of cyber attack being launched against the Tokyo Games. We saw it during the previous Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang in South Korea that Moscow-linked hackers launched disruptive cyber attack against the game's opening ceremonies. They used what was known as the Olympic Destroyer malware to cripple servers and disrupt the opening ceremony. So in my opinion, there's always going to be a very big risk of there being some type of, of cyber attack against the game, especially in light of the fact that the majority of this is going to be held online, that there's not necessarily going to be a very big audience there, if an audience at all. So we're looking at them targeting the, the only way for many people to actually watch the games. So the, for the biggest threats from a geopolitical perspective, we're looking at the kind of big four cyber threat actors. We're looking at China, we're looking at North Korea, we're looking at Iran to a lesser extent, I don't believe, but and then Russia as well, Russia being the main one. As I said, they previously disrupted the, the Pyeongchang games due to uh, political grievances over the fact that they were banned from participating in the games. This ban is still in place. However, it has been reduced by for, from four years to two years, but that does still mean that they cannot that Russian athletes cannot participate under a Russian flag during the Tokyo Games. So due to that, uh, there is a very high chance of Russian actors launching some type of disruptive or even malicious cyber attack against the Tokyo's, Tokyo Games infrastructure. I believe that the US and UK intelligence service disclosed in November or October 2020 that they had evidence to believe that Russia was going to launch a type of such an attack against the Tokyo Games. And then more recently, we saw that while not necessarily linked to Russia itself, that there was a cyber attack launched against the Tokyo Games last uh, in May, May, June, where roughly 170 participants of a cybersecurity drill that was hosted to kind of test the cyber robustness of the, of the Tokyo Games themselves had their data leaked due to a software supply chain attack against Fujitsu's software, which was then linked to several different Japanese ministries. So there has been a precedent so far of people trying to test the Tokyo Games, trying to test its capabilities and its, and its defensive capabilities and its robustness to see whether or not they can launch some type of attack. And then uh, in terms of outside of Russia, you also have the possibility of North Korea. So North Korea, while there isn't necessarily a historical precedent in the last couple of years of them launching any type of malicious cyber activity against the Tokyo Games. As, as Hugo alluded to, there is already quite a strong regional tensions between the two countries, largely stemming from the fact that they still resent the Japanese government, or at least at that point, the imperial Japanese government for occupying the Korean Peninsula. And in, in the wake of that, in the recent years, we've definitely seen a number of North Korean cyber attacks targeted against Japanese government entities and companies. In my personal opinion, in terms of how these attacks would lay out, would play out, you're looking at more financially motivated attacks and maybe to a smaller extent political motivated attacks. But North Korea, because of the pandemic and because of the international sanctions that have been levied against their economy, have had a hard time generating revenue for the regime. We've seen this particularly because of the fact that they closed the borders with China, their biggest trading partner. So in light of that, they've been increasing their number of financially motivated attacks against, say, banks or financial institutions or even smaller companies to try and generate some type of illicit revenue for the regime so they can, to a certain extent, keep their operations going. We've recently seen from Kim Jong-un during the eighth party conference this year, we saw him talk about the fact that their economy is tanking. And more recently, we've heard him basically plead to the international public that they are going through something similar to the arduous march, which anyone who watched North Korea understands was the time when they were severely food insecure and that they were very, in, in some people's opinion, very close to a, a regime collapse. 
And because of that, his, his link between the arduous march and their current situation kind of highlights the fact that they're not doing very well economically, not doing very social, very well socially. There's a lot of social unrest, both within the elites and within the general public. So as a means to kind of alleviate those, those concerns, you could potentially see some type of cyber attack launched against the Tokyo sponsors or the, the general public itself, if there's a general public. These attacks won't necessarily generate revenue during the games themselves, but they could use the game's infrastructure and the game's kind of connections to these sponsors as a way to launch financial attacks later in the year when they're able to find, say, a company or uh, an industry that they, they fancy and that they can then use to generate revenue. Uh, outside of the bigger kind of threats being North Korea and, and Russia, you have also the possibility of there being some type of Chinese state-sponsored cyber, cyber attack. That This one, relatively lower threat considering the fact that Beijing is the next city to host the games, talking about the, the Beijing 2022 Olympic, uh, Winter Olympic Games. But there is possibly nonetheless, especially considering the tensions between Tokyo and Beijing, these would likely be in the, come in the form of cyber espionage. So these would be directed against, say, the game's sponsors, CEOs, or directors, looking at how they can gain information that would be of strategic importance to Beijing in strategic industries. So you're looking at the te technologies, the te telecommunications, the energy sectors, and they would likely take the form of phishing, brute force attacks, public ha Wi-Fi hacks, or some type of software supply chain intrusion, something similar to what they did in the wake of the SolarWinds attack, and also the Microsoft supply chain attack as well that happened earlier this year. But as I said, this is for the large part on the, on the lower degree of threat uh, of actual threats just because of the fact that they are the next one up and they do, and Beijing is would be very hypersensitive to having any type of criticism against their government uh, in, the, in the lead up to their own games. Of course, I'd be a little bit remiss if I didn't talk about the threat posed by cyber criminal groups, uh, much like with North Korean groups, it would be very much largely targeted against financial motivated operations and will very much kind of follow the same playbook of, of ransomware attacks or some type of spear phishing campaign meant to target industries of interest that could they could use to generate revenue. So in my opinion, those would be the more the, the more imminent threats for the Tokyo Games themselves. Got it. Thank you both. So yeah, lots of different risk areas to watch there. I particularly like your point there about the kind of elevated cyber risk this year due to so much of the games being about virtual rather than, you know, in-person attendance, making that cyber disruption, you know, an even more appealing target for threat actors than usual. So cyberspace certainly one to watch. Thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts and insights today. Some really, really interesting context there for our subscribers and listeners as we all get ready to tune in to the next great sporting event of what's already been a pretty exciting summer. And now I'm joined by Ed Johnson, manager of the Insight team, to share with us his thoughts on what to watch out for around the world in the week ahead. Ed, thanks very much for joining me. So what have you got on your radar? What should we be aware of? Thanks, Amy. Looking ahead for the week, we're obviously focusing very uh, very closely on the situation in Haiti following the assassination of President Moise. Tensions on the border with the Dominican Republic will remain uh, fairly elevated, given that the Dominican Republic has closed its border and mobilized its army. Domestically, uh, government instability will remain uh, elevated with unrest throughout the country, likely, despite former Prime Minister Claude Joseph assuming the presidency in an interim basis as uh, investigations go continue into the uh, perpetrators of the attack who the Haitian government claims were Spanish speakers. Looking north to the US, uh, two notable weather events are set to dominate the week ahead. Obviously, the continuing drought uh, on the West Coast and heat wave that has killed over 100 people already. To, to compound that, on the on, down in Florida, we've got Storm Elsa, which is expected to pass through, you know, posing again a threat to life, but also to infrastructure in, in, in that region as well. 
Moving over to the to the Middle East, OPEC Plus could resume talks next week after the group cancelled a meeting over uh, disagreements between major producers, which uh, prompted oil prices to fall heavily. Divisions mainly occurred between Saudi uh, Arabia and the UAE as further evidence of steadily rising regional tensions. Moving to Jordan, uh, a court is expected to present its uh, verdict early next week on the high-profile sedition case involving, involving former royal court chief uh, Bassem Awad Allah and minor royal Sharif bin Hassan bin Zaid. The case and the earlier arrest of former Crown Prince Hamza uh, after a purported coup attempt has rocked the, the generally stable country. So any associated unrest is, is likely to be met with a, with a sort of tough crackdown by the uh, security forces. Elsewhere, a couple of notable dates for, for the diary in a sense. Uh, in the coming week, uh, we've got the 11th of July parliamentary elections in Moldova, which uh, the, the president, Maria Sandu's party, is expected to win. Um, although this will be uh, heavily contested by by opposition forces around former President Igor Dodon. Uh, on the 12th of July, uh, Northern Ireland, there will be uh, commemorations around the Battle of the Boyne, which are, you know, stand to inflame uh, sectarian tensions, which are already fairly elevated as uh, instability in the Northern Ireland Assembly and challenges around Brexit continue. Uh, the 13th of July marks Kashmir's Martyrs Day, a public holiday in, in Pakistan and in the uh, Indian states of Jammu and Kashmir, there is likely to be uh, to be unrest, uh, given that New Delhi removed public holiday status for this uh, event, which commemorates Kashmir Kashmiri citizens who were uh, were killed in clashes in the 1930s. Yeah, security is likely to be tightened across um, in the Indian Indian administered Kashmir region, and you know, in an effort to prevent any, any major public gatherings um, in support of the the former holiday. And uh, that's it for this week.